Let me also say happy Father's Day to the fathers that are out here. I was blessed to have a father who eventually came to faith in Christ Jesus, and I was, I was very blessed. How many fathers do we have in the house this morning? Let me see your hands. Uh, isn't it cool being a father? <laughs> yeah, it's cool being a father, cool being a grandfather. I, uh, I love my son Luke very much. He gave me a card this morning. I just, I, I, have, to, I have to share it with you. It's a guy card. It's a guy card, but it tickled me so much this morning. It says, first of all, on the front, Dad, I may be full of baloney. Got a foot-long sandwich here. But trust me, you're a great dad. And then it says, hot dogs, of course, Frank's dad. And you thought being a dad was a frankless job. <laughs> no pun intended. Picture of Dunky Donies here. Do not, do not forget how special you are. You're loved a waffle lot. <laughs> Butter believe it. <laughs> Hope your Father's Day is piled high with happiness. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my boy. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. That card <laughs> it says it all about our relationship. It's based around God and <laughs> food. <laughs> you know, the fatherhood of God is mentioned from the beginning chapters of Genesis to the very end. And I, I believe that the fatherhood of God is, is there so many times to remind us of what kind of fathers we ought to be. It's easy to be fleshly fathers. All you have to do is be meaner than a junkyard dog, self-serving and, and unconcerned with other people. But being a, a godly dad, that's, that's a whole lot more difficult. and requires the work of the Holy Spirit in, on, and through you first making you the kind of father that God wants you and I to be. So that, that's what we strive for this morning. But it is mentioned so often in Scripture. Jesus, you'll remember, uh, he, he would often say, uh, you know, my father in heaven, my father. And the, the Pharisees and others took exception to that. Who do you think you are that you're the son of God, the son of God? Well, as a matter of fact, he was. So it was entirely appropriate for Jesus to say, be referring to, uh, you know, my father in, in very intimate terms. Then he teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, our Father. So this is an appropriate day to not only remember your earthly father, but your heavenly father, who has forgiven you all of the sins that you've ever committed if you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. He loves you so much, and what a, what a good, good father he is. What a good, good father he is. We are in the Gospel of Mark, if you would like to turn there, chapter 15 this morning. As you turn to Mark 15, let me just paint the background for you. It's Passover week in Jerusalem in April of 30 A.D. At daybreak, Jesus is marched to the Roman governor Pilate because the Jews could not execute anyone, and they wanted the Romans to do their dirty work for them. So nobody could say, oh, you Jews executed Christ. No, they could say, oh, no, it was the Romans. The Sanhedrin had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. It's curious when they haul him up on charges before Pilate, the charge of blasphemy isn't mentioned. Now they accuse him of treason against the Roman Empire. Such hypocrisy. But treason was a Roman crime punishable by death. But it says... In Mark 15 and verse 10, the Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. He knew that. He knew this is an innocent man. 
but now forced by pressure to compromise whatever standards he may have had, he knows he's executing an innocent man. Four times, the gospel records tell us, four times Pilate tried to release Jesus. I find no fault in the man. Who do you want me to release for you, this murderer named Barabbas or Jesus, assuming, of course, they'll pick Jesus? I find no fault in the man. I wash my hands of him. Trying to release Jesus. And then he hopes that having Jesus flogged by his Roman soldiers would have placated their bloodlust that it only seemed to fan the flames. Flogging was a horrible thing done by the Romans as a precursor to crucifixion, but people often died just being flogged. Often the internal organs were laid bare and the musculature of the back shredded into ribbons of quivering flesh. Isaiah reminds us by his stripes, we are healed. Spiritually, physically, Jesus accomplished so much for us. The flogging should have fallen to you and I. I remember when Mel Gibson made the Passion of the Christ, and Jim Caviezel played Jesus Christ in that. They wanted to portray it as real as possible. It is to some too gruesome to watch when Jesus was flogged, but it was very historically accurate. During the filming of the movie, though, Jim Caviezel had convinced Mel Gibson to let him play Christ. He said, I'm the same age Jesus was when he was crucified. My initials are J.C., I think God has called me to fulfill this role as playing Christ in your movie. But during the filming of that portion where Jesus was flogged, during most of the filming, he had this, this padded protective gear on his back. Uh, and one time he was whipped and the thing had fallen off his back and the full weight of the, of the blow fell upon his back, leaving permanent scars on his back. And he said for the first time in his life, he realized truly the price that Christ had paid to save us. Jesus felt every blow. The Jews limited the flogging to 40 lashes as some kind of act of, of kindness. Can I tell you, Jesus wasn't flogged by Jews. He was flogged by Romans. The purpose of Roman flagellation was to elicit a confession of a crime. And so their goal was to whip him until he either died or confessed to a crime. And so they whipped him and whipped him and whipped him. In The Passion of the Christ, which is the only R-rated movie I've ever recommended in my entire life, it is gruesomely portrayed what Jesus did. I've not known anybody, pastor or layman alike, that could watch that scene without bowing the head and saying, I, I, can't, I can't stand to watch any, anymore. It's too harsh. It's too brutal. That's every stripe that was laid on his back that should have been laid on yours and mine. That's why Jesus took that upon himself. And we tend to be so trite in our observance of these issues, failing to realize the full price that Jesus paid so that you could be saved. By rejecting him, we essentially trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed not only on the cross, but during the crown of thorns being jammed upon his brow, the blows that fell upon his face, the beard that was plucked out by the handfuls. 
the flogging that went on interminably, his blood. Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. You wonder, why was all of this necessary? I don't feel comfortable studying this. Do you feel comfortable being saved? Because that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood was shed so that yours might be spared. The wages of sin is what? Death, Romans 6.23 says. I should have died for my own sins. Jesus committed no sin at all. None. Jesus asked his accusers one time, which of you can find me guilty of a single sin? Not something you typically want to say to your enemies who would haul out a laundry list of sins that you and I have committed. But when he asked his, his critics, which of you can accuse me of a single sin? They were going, you know, can't think of any. That's because he committed no sin. He offended them often by pointing out their hypocrisy, but they just wanted him removed they had religion and they were comfortable with that. They did not want a relationship and saw themselves as too arrogant to need a savior, much like unsaved people do today. So prideful in themselves, hoping that their good sin, their good deeds outweigh their sins when they get to heaven, that somehow or another they'll get into heaven apart from the blood of Jesus Christ and surrender to his lordship. That's not there is no salvation apart from a total surrender to Jesus Christ. But these verses, as difficult as they are to go through, remind us of the price that Jesus was willing to pay. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. But he loves you so much he chose to. Greater love has no man than this, Jesus said, that he lay down his life for his friends. We sing that song, I'm a friend of God, I'm a child of God. That's part of your inheritance purchased for you by the cross of Jesus Christ and what he was willing to endure so that you and I might inherit the blessings of heaven above. We must never take the cross for granted. We must never trivialize the price that was paid to secure you, lest you become prideful and arrogant. Because going through these passages should rend your heart and bring a tear to your eyes. And if it does not, there's something terribly wrong with you, spiritually speaking. A sensitive heart is the best Father's Day present that you can give God that there is this morning. A tender, sensitive, grateful heart. As we go through these verses... Jesus was tried first by the religious authorities and then by the political authorities, but the praetorian guard had had their way with him, beating him and mocking him and adding insult to injury before being led away to be crucified. He was tried in three religious trials. First of all, he appeared before Annas and then Caiaphas and then before the whole Sanhedrin as if that wasn't enough. Then he appeared before Pilate who didn't want to handle this political hot potato, found out that Herod was in town and Jesus was from Herod's territory up in the Galilee and he sent him to Herod. And Herod said, well, you want to do some magic trick for me? Want to entertain me? Want to show me a miracle? Jesus would have nothing to do with it at all. So Herod sent him back to Pilate without finding any guilt in him whatsoever. And then finally he appears before Pilate again as John 18 and 19 record for us. These weren't trials. 
This is an attempt at legitimizing premeditated murder. Jesus was no victim, though. No victim. Jesus said, don't, don't you guys realize I could call down 12 legions of angels? And, and I don't have to go to the cross. Nobody's forcing me to do this. And you think, well, what's one angel capable? Jesus says, I can call down six legions. That's 36,000 angels. What's one angel capable of? In the time of Hezekiah, one, one, count them, one angel put to death 185,000 Assyrian troops in the time of Hezekiah. Jesus said, yeah, I can get 36,000 of those guys to come to my aid. Problem is, you and I couldn't have been saved then. He could have been delivered. But there's a father figure for you. He's self-sacrificing. Are you? Do you lay down your life for your friends? Or do you demand your own way as some petty tyrant in the home? Are you harsh with your, your wife, those of you that are married? Are you demanding of your own way? Does she drive a beater while you drive a new $80,000 pickup truck? You should be the first to be flogged. Just saying. There's a selfish part in each one of us. Just say amen. Don't let it rule you. Jesus gave us the most important thing that that could ever have been given to us, eternal life. The soldiers mock him, striking him again and again, spitting on him, clothing him with a crown of thorns. And his blood was shed. Put a mockery of a purple robe around him on his torn open back and then ripped the robe off, reopening all of those wounds. Verse 21, a man, a certain man named Simon of Cyrene, North Africa, that's part of Libya, the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him, the Romans did, to carry the cross. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and, went, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. In verse 21 reminds us of this man, Simon. You know the first thing I thought of when I saw the word Simon? Where's Simon Peter? Here's Simon from Cyrene. Where's Simon Peter? The rock? The one who said, Jesus, although all of the others desert you, I will never desert you. Where's Simon Peter? Where are any of the disciples besides John? A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They're interesting folks, well known to Mark's readers uh, in the early church in 60 A.D. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was forced to carry the cross? That was Roman practice. It was called the patibulum in Latin. It weighed, oh, plus or minus 75 pounds. Jesus couldn't carry it because he had been flogged and every one of the muscles in his back had been destroyed. That's why Jesus couldn't carry his own cross. His back had been laid open brutally, his muscles torn to ribbons of quivering flesh by the flogging, making carrying the beam impossible. But Rufus is later mentioned in Romans 16.13. 
This must have touched this man's life, Simon, forever, and his sons after him. They saw what dad did. He didn't come to Jerusalem for any other reason than to celebrate the Jewish Passover. He never anticipated he'd be pressed into Roman service or carry somebody else's cross. But it was the best thing that ever happened to him in his life, looking back. Can I tell you, there are rewards that you have no idea of if you will faithfully carry your cross. It's not really your cross. It is the cross that Jesus fashioned for you and I. Nobody's laid open your back with a a Roman flagellum. There's no excuse that you and I have for not picking up our cross daily, denying ourselves and following him. He already did it. Simon of Cyrene shows us that it's possible for weak human beings like you and I to pick up his cross. But it requires self-denial. Another fatherly figure. Self-denial. Be a servant to your family. Be a servant to your wife. A servant to your children. Verse 22 reminds us the place was called Golgotha, which is Hebrew for skull. In Latin, it's Calvary. It's where we get the name of our church, Calvary Chapel Eastside. I don't ever want to forget the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the means by which our spiritual enemies were defeated and my eternal destiny secured. Understand that. There's power in this life because of the cross of Jesus Christ, and there's hope in the next life that goes into eternity. And all of that because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus triumphed over all of our spiritual enemies by the cross. That's where the debt was paid. That's where all the accusation was dealt with. We owe an eternal debt to Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the only scars on anybody in heaven will be worn by the Son of God? In the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus as a lamb as though he had been slain. He'll bear the marks of crucifixion. When he serves the wedding feast to you and I, you'll be able to see the, that nail-scarred hand. And you'll be able to see the price that he paid for your salvation and mine. And forever we will be remembering that. that the only scars in heaven are bore by the one who died on the cross for you and I. I don't want to, this morning, get into the gruesome details or the medical aspects of crucifixion because I don't want you to miss the point, and most of us in this room do not have a medical background or pre-med degree, so I don't want to deal with that. But can I tell you, it is the most excruciating way a human being can be executed. They would typically hang on the cross for two to three days. Spikes driven through their feet and their hands. Ropes affixing them in place until they finally expired of an excruciating death of suffocation. Suffocation. Because the only way you could breathe was to push yourself up by the nails driven in your feet. Pushing yourself up so you could take a breath. Rotating the nails through your hands or wrists and then putting yourself back down. That was one breath. And if you don't take 12 to 20 of them a minute, you die. And to excruciatingly put up with the pain of the nails in your hands and feet just so you can push yourself up and breathe. In fact, the word excruciating itself is a fascinating word. It means literally out of the cross. 
don't ever use the word excruciating unless you've been crucified. The other day I went to the doctor and he had to cut something out of my hide. He says, this is really going to hurt. I'm changing doctors. He asked me if I was allergic to anything and I said, I'm allergic to pain. He said, well, I'm going to give you a numbing shot. And I says, as long as it stays numb until this time next year, we're good. He said, I can promise you four to six hours. <laughs> Little sting. That's, a, that's all there was to it. I go home and Kathy says, well, how was it? Oh, it was excruciating. And then the Holy Spirit got hold of me and says, I beg your pardon? It was what? No, it wasn't excruciating. So tritely, we use these words, don't we? Realizing they border on blasphemy. We think so little of the cross and even less of carrying our own cross because he died for us. We struggle with living for him. But that's what picking up your cross daily, Luke says, denying ourselves and following after him is all about. That's the price of discipleship. The price of discipleship. Jesus said, if you don't love me more than mother, father, sister, brothers, sons and daughters, you're not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. So what does it cost you to be a Christian? Everything. Everything. All that we have belongs to him anyway, doesn't it? He died to redeem every bit of it. Crucified on Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The reason is he didn't want an anesthesia. He felt the full force of the sins of the world upon him and the force of the spikes that were driven through his flesh. And he would not dull the pain nor the experience Verse 24, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Matthew 27 says they offered him gall, which is a pain-killing narcotic, which Jesus refused, so that he might taste death for every man and know what it was. He tasted death for you and I. Keep your finger here. I want you to flip over to Psalm 22 for just a moment because you're going to find the psalmist writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit describes in rather remarkable detail what Jesus did, what, what took upon him. Psalm 22, starting in verse 1. Jesus said this very thing in verse 1. And perhaps you have ever felt this way. If you know that sin separates us from a holy God, then we want to sin as little as possible. But have you ever been in a place where you didn't feel God's presence? Maybe you said something or did something or demanded your own way or pushed through when you, you know it had nothing to do with making a right decision, but it was what you wanted. And you didn't feel the nearness of God. You got your way. What you traded for was the intimacy and presence of God. A lack of submission and a bullish, rebellious nature will always put us at distance with God. Here's the problem. We still want to be good Pharisees, so we act the part. 
Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on his own son because Jesus now took upon himself all sin that was committed by all people in all time. I mean, you've felt the weight of your own sins from time to time, haven't you? How would you like to feel the sins, the weight of the sins of 7.7 billion people that are alive today on planet Earth? Or the 15 billion people that have ever lived in the history of the world? Trying to take that upon yourself would crush any one of us. God could not look upon sin, so Jesus took it upon himself, but said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. And I am not silent. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted in you, and they delivered. You delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. Now we move into the prophetic section, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me. This was the purpose of being put upon a pole by the Romans, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. That's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees at the foot of the cross threw in the face of Jesus. This psalm was written centuries before the fact. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast from birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. You can just sense in, as Jesus feels these things in himself. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. And all of my bones are out of joint. Another one of the excruciating aspects of crucifixion, as you hung there, your body weight would eventually take all of your joints out of socket, adding to the exquisite pain. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. And they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The Roman squad of executioners at the foot of the cross didn't realize they were fulfilling Scripture, but we now know that they were. They had a free will. It's not like they said, well, let's fulfill Psalm 22 and impress the Christians in Colorado Springs in the 21st century. They did what Roman executioners did. Fulfilling this prophecy of Christ. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. It goes on. I'll let you read that when you want to. But the things I just wanted you to notice that these things were foreordained by the will of God. 
It was God's will to crush his own son to redeem you. If you had been the only person who had ever sinned in the history of the world, Jesus would have surely gone to the cross. So until you personalize it on that level, you'll never appreciate what Jesus did for you. We know that he died for the sins of the world. Do you know that he died for your sins? Unless, of course, you don't feel that you've ever sinned. We like to say, well, I made a mistake, misstep in judgment, a faux pas. We like to excuse it. God calls it sin. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes you and I, the best of us, the worst of us. Thus all are in need of a Savior. That's what Jesus did for us. Let me turn back to Mark 15 and verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him, king of the Jews. He's an insurrectionist. Only Caesar is king. This is another king. Needs to be crucified. But in fact, Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. And then it says in verse 33, at the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Oh, it is a hard piece of Scripture to go through. It is a hard Scripture to go through. Verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. One of them, according to the other Gospels, was repentant, never got baptized or joined a church, and yet Jesus said, I tell you truly, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because the thief had simply said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's acknowledging him as the son of David, the Messiah of the world. Those who passed by, verse 29, hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Well, that is exactly what Psalm 22 predicted, the enemies of Christ. In other words, God knew it all. He knew it was going to happen before it ever happened. This is called the omniscience of God. What does God know? Everything. Beginning to end, before the beginning and after the end. In the same way, verse 31 says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, he said, but he can't save himself. Oh, he could have, but then we wouldn't be saved. In other words, Jesus was not self-serving. He hadn't committed any sin in and of himself, so he, he didn't die for his sins, but for yours and mine. But he didn't have to, and he didn't have to hang on the cross. It was a choice that he made. Choice that he made. Verse 32, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They wouldn't have believed. If they, they wouldn't believe on his life and his miracles, they won't believe on his death and his burial and resurrection. And many still don't to the present day. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Uh, the third hour, verse 25, reminds us it's about 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, you might have noticed that I, some of you have a Bible that says, well, and you're saying, well, Pastor Jim, you skipped verse 28. It's not in the original language. Pastor Jim, it's in the King James Version. That's not the standard. The original writings are. It doesn't matter what's found in the King James Version. What does the Greek say? What did the oldest manuscript say? 
the original texts are the standard. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts are simply the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus, the 5th century Codex Alexandrinus, and the 4th century Codex Vaticanus, which is found in the Vatican Library to the present day. They, none of them, none of them have verse 28. That's why the NIV has left it out. It doesn't belong there. A later scribe probably lifted it out of Luke's gospel, chapter 22, and verse 37. They're quoting Isaiah 53, 12, uh, by way of clarification. But it was not a part of the original writing, so don't get all uppity with me later on. Say, well, Pastor Jim, you skipped verse 28, and it's not found in that modern perversion of yours called the NIV. The NIV is the number one selling Bible in the world and has been for the last 45 years because of its historical accuracy. And it's not based on the King James Version of the Bible. You may love that, and that's great. That's fine. I'm surprised it's as good a translation it was in light of scholarship in the 17th century in England. However, if you have an open mind and you're honest, what you want to know is what did, what did the gospel writers actually write, not what was added by later editors trying to add clarification. You want to know what the Word of God says. And that's why it's the number, the NIV is the number one selling Bible in the world. The King James Version has now slipped all the way to sixth place. It's losing popularity because people don't talk like that anymore. So a lot of people are reading the new King James Version of the Bible, but it's simply an editing of the old King James Version, but still makes all of these same editorial mistakes. The NASB, while it may be very accurate, has now slipped to 10th in global Bible sales. And understand that Bible sales are a multi-billion dollar annual business. I like to get the text right. For me, I want to know what the Word of God says. So I'm not a real big fan of, of paraphrases or things like the message and stuff like that to put it in the words of a man when I can read the words of God. Don't you want to read the Word of God? Absolutely. So you want whatever version speaks to you the closest and is a good, accurate translation, that'll, that'll serve your soul well. Verse 31 again. <laughs> the priest said, he saved others, but he can't save himself? Well, Jesus could have. Let me ask you, can you save yourself? If you think you can, tell me how. You know the wages of sin is death. You want to hang on a cross? How can you save yourself? You can't. Your good deeds can't save you. Although they may be many, you have not been perfect from the womb to the tomb, and that is God's standard met only in Christ Jesus. So you've just acknowledged the need of a Savior. Well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Really? Would you like to stand up and recite all ten of them in front of us all? You can't. So how can you count on that which you don't even know to save you? And none of us kept the Ten Commandments anyway. And even if you did, what do you do with the other 603 Jewish rules and regulations that you probably haven't kept? On Father's Day, typically I like to eat, well, pretty much anything. But starting off with a good barbecued steak and shrimp and crab and lobster and dessert, that's just a great way to begin after church, isn't it? That's what I'm looking forward to. Any, I should eat more breakfast. <laughs> I'm good, baby. <laughs> I'm good. <sighs> Where was I going with that anyway? <laughs> was I inviting you over? Nah, 
Not a, not a chance. <laughs> uh, this I know. God is good. I can't save myself. The Jewish dietary laws forbid me shrimp and crab and lobster. If you've ever eaten any of those, you're on your way to hell. If you're trusting in keeping the law to save you, you need Jesus. You can't save yourself. That's the whole point. You can't save yourself. Now, verse 32, remember Luke tells us that one of the guys repented on the cross that was crucified with Jesus. Verse 33, at the sixth hour, this is by Roman reckoning, 12 noon. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the, the ninth hour, this is 3 p.m., uh, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, quoting Psalm 22 there. Not because he thought, well, won't they be impressed if I hang here and quote Scripture? That's how he felt. As he took upon himself all of the sins of the world, he felt like that sin was separating him from God, and it was as he became sin for us. He who had no sin became sin for us, Romans tells us. That's what Jesus did for us. He speaks the common man's language in Aramaic, which was misunderstood by some of the Jewish scholars that were there. And some people are always trying to look for a naturalistic explanation. Well, Pastor Jim, in the, in the year 30 A.D., was there a, a partial eclipse that accounted for the darkness? No, there wasn't. Were you outside yesterday? I was piddling around on, underneath the hood of my truck. And at 12 noon, the storm clouds moved in. It got so dark over my house, I had to go get a flashlight just to look under the hood of the car. It got so dark. It was amazing. I can just sense that supernatural darkness that came over the whole land. When what should have been the brightest time of the day from noon to 3 o'clock, darkness came over the whole land. It's like the storm clouds, you know, were separating the Heavenly Father from the Son that had taken upon the, Himself the sins of the world. And God said, I, I, I can't look upon that. Can't look upon that. Your sins have separated you from God, the Old Testament tells us. All sin does. You sense that separation. Jesus died to remove that separation between a sinful man and a holy God. So I walk in his forgiveness. I walk because I'm covered in his blood. I am a child of God. We sing that song, but the words are absolutely true. The older I get in the Lord, the less I realize I know. And the more childlike I become. Wisdom and understanding, I have none. I feel like a child anymore. Just beginning to know what it is to grasp the hem of his garment. And I want to stay there. I want to stay at Jesus' feet like Mary. I could be busy like a Martha in the kitchen. And when I do that, I hate it. I'd rather humble myself before him as a little child. Sit at his feet look into his eyes and say, thank you, Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 34, boy, does that stand out. Sin always separates, and Jesus took my sins upon him. When those that are standing there misunderstood the phrase and said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Uh, in Hebrew, Elijah is pronounced Eliyah, Eliyah. In Greek, Helias. Jesus said it in Mary. In Aramaic, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. 
they thought, well, he's calling for Elijah because Elijah has to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before the coming of the Messiah. One man ran, filled a sponge with vine, wine vinegar, verse 36, and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down, they said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The New Testament recalls for us, if you add them all up, seven of the last sayings of Jesus on earth. Each, and understand this, each utterance causing excruciating agony because he had to push himself up to take a breath to say anything. Rotating the nails in his hands and in his feet just to speak a word. And he said seven of these things, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23 tells us. The Romans didn't know what they were doing. The Jews perhaps knew more. But what they didn't know is that they had are crucifying their, their own God. To the thief on the cross, Jesus spoke again and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus spoke those words at great personal expense. When Jesus saw a third saying, when he saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, he said to his mother, dear woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that time on, John took her into his own home. That's recorded for us in, in John chapter 19. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice his fourth saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then what Mark has treated so briefly, later knowing that all was completed and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. In, in the Greek, it's just one word, dipso. Dipso, I thirst. Finally, John 19 records for us, it is finished. The debt paid in full. It's finished. Thank you, Jesus. And when it was all accomplished, last of all, Jesus uttered his final prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you and I and the church for 2,000 years have been praying the same since. Father, into your hands I I commit my spirit. That's a, a, a delegation of ownership. I, all of me, I give all of you. I just give it all. Into your, you should pray that prayer every day. It'll keep you humble. It'll keep you humble. It'll keep your marriage strong. It'll keep your walk and your faith intact when the times of trials and trouble hit, and they will. Stand firm in your faith. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Because Jesus paid the price, I have that, that intimacy with the Heavenly Father. The veil has been torn in two in the holy place, and now we have access to the very throne room of God. Verse 37, and with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who had stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Wow. That's the whole reason Jesus died, was to reveal to each one of us that he, in fact, is the the, not one, not a son of God. He is the singular, the only one of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty singular and narrow road, isn't it? But it's the only way that you and I can be saved. You say, well, I want to pick another way. I want to pick the way of my choosing. Maybe through philosophy or Eastern religions or smoking dope or whatever else. You know, there's one way to get you to heaven. Jesus said, the way is narrow. Few find it. Path to hell It's wide and lots of people find it. People will stop by the church sometime and say, how do I get to Pueblo from here? That's easy. Head down here, I-25 South. Now imagine somebody saying, yeah, well, that's fine, but I don't want to go that way. Then you don't want to go to Pueblo. You want to go to heaven? Jesus is the way. He's the way, the singular, unique identity, the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father. Well, I want to go to Pueblo. That's great. Jesus. Well, I don't want to go that way. Then you don't want Jesus, and you don't want to go to heaven. Not that Pueblo is heaven. Just follow my analogy here, please. They say, well, I want to head that way. That'll take you to Lyman. That won't get you to Pueblo. Yeah, but I don't want to take that road to Pueblo. Then you don't want to go to Pueblo. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to bow their life to Jesus Christ in total and 100% lifelong submission. Everybody wants to go to heaven, and the pagans invent ways of thinking how they can go to heaven without Jesus. He's the only one that paid the price for your sins and mine. Nobody else did. Buddha can't get you to heaven. Confucius can't get you to heaven. Eastern philosophy can't get you to heaven. Muhammad did not die for your sins. Big revelation of the Islamic community, but I'm sorry, he's a poor savior candidate. In fact, he told his daughter on his deathbed, his own daughter, I cannot save you, he said. Then why are so many believing in Islam these days? Deception, that's easy. Satan's got a ton of deceptions out there to delude people into thinking there are many ways to God when in fact there is only one. There's only one way to God. Do you know him? Now that you've sat through the service, you know about him, but do you know him personally? Lord and Savior, submitted your life to him? Into your hands I commit my spirit kind of attitude? That's what it takes. It says in verse 40, as we wrap it up, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, out of whom uh, Jesus had cast seven demons, Luke tells us. Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and of, of Salome. And in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who'd come up with him also to Jerusalem were there with him as well. It was the preparation day, verse 42 says, that is the day before the Sabbath. In other words, their Sabbath started at sundown, so there needs to be haste and burial preparation. He died at 3, but by 6 o'clock, he's got to be in the tomb. They've got a very limited window of opportunity here. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, a secret believer, if you will, uh, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked uh, for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead, summoning the centurion. Yeah, the same guy who said, surely this was the Son of God. He's had a revelation. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died because typically they would last two to three days. They wanted to drag the torture out as long as humanly possible. There's never been a more exquisite way to execute a criminal than crucifixion. It is heartless. It is brutal. It is methodical. 
It is demonic. When he learned, verse 45, that from the centurion that it was so, that Jesus was dead, and certainly this man, after the spear thrust in Jesus' heart, that settled all doubt. And he gave the body then to Joseph. So Joseph brought the body, uh, took some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of rock, his own personal burial crypt. And he rolled a stone in front of the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They, they all knew this, exactly where he was. Some people say, well, they went to the wrong tomb, and that's why they couldn't find Jesus afterwards. <laughs> oh, come on. But critics abound. I just want to wrap it up with, with these three closing thoughts that we've touched on briefly. Simon of Cyrene carried Jesus' cross. Where was Peter? Where is Peter? It begs the question, do we, do we mind picking up our cross? Do we do it daily? Daily? Are you in communication daily with your heavenly Father? In the Word, in prayer, in worship? Daily, Jesus said, pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself and come and follow me. We get so many distractions in this world. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself Follow me, Jesus said in, in Luke 9, 23. But the second point is that the crucifixion satisfied a debt that we owed. I owed. Jesus died for you personally. He loves you so much. Don't fight him on the issue of lordship. Surrender. Become as a little child, Jesus said, because otherwise you'll in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Become as a little child, not proud, puffed up, arrogant, or religious. It's the religious leaders that crucified him. You don't want to be religious. Church attendance can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Giving money to the church can't save you. The blood of Jesus Christ is offered to you, but the price is that you have to give up everything. And commit your spirit into your father's hands as well. You want to know what the best Father's Day present that you could possibly give is? Give your heavenly Father all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. That's the best thing you could possibly do. Your earthly father, feed him steak, crab, shrimp, lobster, that's fine. Give him a donut afterwards. Wrap it up with a cup of coffee. But your heavenly Father has no need of any of those things. What he wants is your heart. All of your heart, not just the convenient parts, not just Sunday morning. You know when he walks out or he wants to be as near to you as he was the one you walked in, and in between. He wants you in worship. He wants you surrendered. He wants you walking in faith, in submission, in gentleness, in kindness. Why is this important that we live like this today? Well, that's easy. He's coming again. He is coming again. Whether you're ready for it or not, He is coming again. Ah, let's stand together. As the band comes up, let's close in a word of prayer.